in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. As we continue our study of the letters in the book of Revelation that were sent to the seven churches, we're occupied now with considering the epistles sent as a part of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John to be sent to the churches, that particular letter within a letter to the church at Ephesus. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the history of the foundation of the church at Ephesus and spent most of our time in the book of Acts where we saw the Apostle Paul with his companions establishing the church there upon the very meager foundation of the preaching of the gospel first to the twelve disciples of John in chapter 19 and then establishing the work more fully by laboring there among them about three years a much uh, many adversaries but with a great and effectual open door. So we've seen the foundation of the church and apostolic doctrine and example. We've seen the foundation of the church and its radical conversion from its idolatry into uh, into the worship of the Lord, even so that the very culture in which the people lived was greatly affected, negatively affected, and lost much of its revenue and its pleasure and its idolatry. And so then the persecution followed and their endurance was required. Tonight we go into the second portion of our consideration of the church at Ephesus and this epistle to the church at Ephesus by concentrating on the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus. Having last week looked at the foundation of the church at Ephesus, this week, the Lord willing, we will look at the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus. Let's read again Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your toil and patience and that you cannot bear evil men and did try them that call themselves apostles and they are not and did find them false and you have patience and did bear for my name's sake and has not grown weary. But I have against you that you did leave your first love. Remember, therefore, whence you are fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now again, before we consider these words, let's turn to the Lord and ask his help to us tonight. 
Our Father, we do not mean to be vainly repetitious, but to come before you to confess again our utter dependence upon you. We've been reminded even these last few days and again this morning that we have nothing within us, any righteousness or any strength or ingenuity by which we may lay hold upon you or by which we may guarantee your response to us or by which we may deliver ourselves from our darkness and our weakness and our sin. But, O Lord, you have supplied and provided for us all that we need to have access to you and all your provision and all your deliverance. And it is in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not come in any other name. We do not come with any other hope. We come in Jesus' name. We come, O Lord, in the name of him whom you have appointed ruler in Zion and Savior in Zion. And we come and ask that tonight again, not relying on past mercies, not relying on this morning's grace, but needing fresh grace for tonight, that you would come in his name by your Spirit and feed us and instruct us and make us better saints. And if there are those in our midst who are strangers to our Lord, that you may open their eyes and save them from their sins and join them to us with a full heart and turn them from the life of idolatry to the life of the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you, our Father. Hear our plea now. Give me liberty and give me clarity and help me to help your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now tonight we enter into our consideration of the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus by noticing the emphasis of our Lord himself placing upon them a commendation because of their steadfastness in the work which was theirs and which is ours. First of all, though, notice by way of very brief introduction, the Lord's assurance of his omniscient acquaintance with the church. He says in verse 1, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know your works. We have already seen that just as in every epistle the Lord introduces himself by some sort of designation, it it all harks back to chapter 1, and at least one or more of those aspects of his glory, which we saw in chapter 1, he borrows and applies again and utilizes it in the introduction to his epistles to these churches. Whatever they need that Christ is and that Christ has, he applies it to them. In this case, he has the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And that reminds us of verse 20 of chapter 1, speaking of the mystery of the seven stars which they saw in his right hand, and the seven golden lampstands among whom he walked in the midst. The church is represented by the seven lampstands, and the stars are, the we believe, those pastors and men that Christ has put in the church to teach them the light of Christ given to the church, that the church in turn might be the light of Christ in the world. Those stars which illuminate the church are in Christ's hands. 
And so those stars which illuminate the church in Christ's hands become the instrument of Christ to give the church the ability to illuminate the world. And there the church is then called the lampstands, the golden, valuable, precious lampstands. But he shows them his omniscient acquaintance with them by citing to the Ephesian church who he is. By drawing from chapter 1 that attribute that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Where is our Lord in reference to Ephesus? He's in their midst. He's in the midst of the churches of Asia Minor to which this book is being sent, representing all the church of all history and all of God's people in every age. The Lord Jesus is there in their midst. Now, if you understood something of geography, you would notice that in ancient Asia Minor, where Ephesus was located on the Aegean Sea and was the most prominent city of that whole region, and rivaled even Pergamos, which was the official capital, as the most valuable and notable city. In that whole world, there, were, there was a little circular highway, the main circuit, they call it, in Asia Minor. And it connected these seven cities that are listed into which these church letters were sent. These churches almost looked like on a map making up a little circle. As one man said, they looked like a necklace... And in, from this text, a wonderful necklace, each church representing a jewel, hanging around the neck of our Lord in their midst. They are precious to him, and he's in the midst of them. But that being in the midst of them is further amplified in verse 2, the first clause, when he says, I know thy works. He's not only there in their midst... But his acquaintance with them is omniscient as he stands in their midst. The implication of his presence is he sees and he knows and he understands what they are up to. He knows the good and he knows the bad. Now, we've spent time in the past emphasizing that principle from chapter 1. So we'll not spend any more time tonight doing it. But he introduces the letter by the assurance of his omniscient acquaintance with the church. But secondly, he introduces it by a reminder of his gracious authority over the church. These seven stars are in his right hand, in his hand. They are in his control. The light to the church, which comes from Christ, is in Christ's control. So that the light of the church, which comes from the church as a lampstand and lights the world, is in Christ's control. So at the end of the letter, you see him saying in verse 5, Else I come to you and will remove your candlestick out of its place unless you repent. He is able to take away the light of the church and its influence in the world. He's able to remove its influence, to ruin it, to dissolve it, to make it disappear. It always is in his hands. The church is in his hands. He's in their midst. He knows their situation and he holds their influence and their life and their usefulness in his hands. But that's a word also of comfort. <coughs> it's not only a picture of authority and a picture of power because it's in his hand, but it's a gracious picture because he also is able to supply the need of those men whom he's appointed to the church so that the church may grow and benefit and develop and be fruitful in their life 
and ministry together so that their light will shine and so that the world will receive benefit from them and give praise to God on their behalf and so that they will receive blessing and reward for their faithfulness. They're in his hand. He supplies the need of the church. He can direct the church. He can chasten the church because he has it all and its very ministry in his own hand. That's why we speak of the church receiving officers to the church from Christ. Not selecting them, but receiving them. They are gifts of Christ to the church. They're in his hands. And he provides them. He qualifies them. He gives them gifts. He calls them and gives them to the church. And so the church receives them. So there's the assurance of his omniscient acquaintance with the church and the reminder of his gracious authority over the church. But then let's look and examine the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus. And there are two aspects to this that we have to keep in mind as we study it. Basically, the church at Ephesus is seen here to be expressing endurance and consistency in arduous service for Jesus Christ and his cause. Endurance and consistency in arduous service for Jesus Christ and his cause. And this is coupled also with a discernment resulting from an application of thorough scrutiny. They are enduring, they are consistent in their arduous service for Christ and his cause, and in the context of this arduous service, they show themselves to be discerning by an application of a thoroughgoing, wise scrutiny. Now, that's what we're looking at, and let me show you how we find it. Look at verse 2. I know your works and your toil and your patience, or literally, steadfast endurance, and that you cannot bear evil men, and did try them, or test them, or prove them, that call themselves apostles, and they're not, And you did find them false, and you have patience, and did bear for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he commends the church. Now we all understand who have read this letter to the Ephesian church that there's a very stern and dreadful rebuke given to the church at Ephesus. But we're going to reserve that for later. We'll concentrate on that separately. This week, look at the commendation that's given to the church. And it's a commendation for the church's faithful service to Jesus Christ. And then there is a statement of a reward for that service. But tonight, we're going to concentrate on the faithfulness of the Ephesian church in its service To the Lord Jesus Christ and his cause, which is linked with their expressed discernment resulting from an application of thorough scrutiny. Let's examine the service of the church of Ephesus to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 2, I know your works. The first word our Lord selects in commanding the church is the word erga. The Greek word, which simply is a generic term referring to all kinds of work, good deeds and bad deeds. 
The Lord knows their works, the things they're doing. Now, what is the church supposed to be doing? What's the church's job? What is the church's function? What is the church's task in the world? Now, you may divide the church's task up into several tasks, including worship, benevolence, nurture, and discipline. You may include in that the teaching and the preaching and the proclamation and the propagation of the truth of Jesus Christ embodied in the Scripture. All of those things may be called the tasks of the church. But the central task of the church may be focused upon its occupation in the ordinary required duties of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. The regular work of the church is an ordinary required duty of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. The church's task is to preach the truth, to proclaim the truth, to preserve the truth, to maintain the purity of the truth in its proclamation. And he commends them that he knows their works. And we know that that essential work is in maintaining the truth because of the very specific things he points out in application in the later part of the letter. You've tried them that say they're apostles and are not. Found them false. And then in verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And in a moment, we'll explain what that was so we can understand that the regular work of the church of Jesus Christ is that it is occupied in the ordinary required duty of maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. There's not a higher charge given to the church of Christ than that she preach and maintain the purity of good doctrine. The church's task, its ordinary task, is to be a light in the world. And the light and the truth are the same thing in the scripture. It's the church's duty to proclaim the truth clearly, consistently, in season, out of season. What is the charge that Paul gives to Timothy in the midst of the falling away of the multitudes? Preach the word. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. Preach the word. What does Paul tell Timothy will keep him from becoming an imposter and a seducer? As he says, they will wax worse and worse. But you have learned the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. And the Scriptures are breathed of God and able to supply the man of God unto every good work, thoroughly sufficient for every work of Christ in the church are the Scriptures. So the church's duty is to proclaim, to guard, to propagate the scriptural truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the centerpiece of God's eternal saving purpose and work. This church was occupied in the ordinary required duties of the maintenance of the purity of the truth. Now, in order for us to understand the significance of that fact, I, we're going to have to look a bit more at the church of Ephesus and its situation in doctrine. In order to do that, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, I submit 
as far as I can understand it, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, were written after what we have read in the book of Acts was completed. I believe that the three epistles that are called the pastorals were written probably from prison, but not from the first imprisonment of Paul when he was in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. And it describes him as living in two years in his own hired house and receiving men, teaching and preaching, no man hindering him. Apparently, when he got to Rome, Nero was not in a bad mood. Apparently, it was before Nero had flipped his wig and had become very angry with the Christians and before he had burned Rome down and breathed havoc against them. And apparently, because the Romans, all the way over in Caesarea Philippi, Festus and Felix and Agrippa, had found no fault in him, even said that he would not be convicted if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. There would be no problem. He would have been set free because they were going to set him free. Under the pressure of the Jews in Palestine, they were going to set him free. By the time he gets to Rome, those in Judea did not follow him further, assuming they were rid of him. He was gone. So for two years, there's no problem for Paul. He's sort of under house arrest, but he's given every freedom, every privilege. The, the Caesar has nothing to do with him. He's not worried with him. The guy's made no threats to Rome. There's no problem here. So he preaches and teaches and nobody forbids him or hinders him. But good, strong tradition tells us that Paul was toward the end of that two-year period, released from that Roman house arrest because there, the Romans finally, there was no pressure from the Jews. Apparently, they from Judea did not follow him and insist on prosecution. He had gotten two years without having anything happen. He finally was allowed to go free. And good, strong tradition says he did indeed make it all the way to Spain and preach the gospel, which was his intention, as stated in the first chapter of Rome. He went through all the circuit of where he had been to preach before, went all the way back to Ephesus again. And that's what I believe is the significance of his saying to Timothy that he left him in Ephesus in verse 3 of the first epistle of Timothy. He left him in Ephesus going to Macedonia himself. There's no record in the book of Acts that Paul ever left Timothy behind him when he went to Macedonia. In each case, Timothy went with him. There's no record in, in uh, the book of Acts or anywhere else that Paul went to Miletus with Trophimus and left him there sick and Timothy being someplace else. That is referred to in these two epistles to Timothy. But for that reason and several others... The, imprison, the prison epistles, these pastorals, I believe, were written after what we've seen in the book of Acts, probably in the latter half of the 60s A.D. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that they were written by Paul to Timothy, who was now occupied with a pastoral duty in Ephesus, a church that by now had become established and was under some good training. The first epistle, in fact, was written in, in order to set things right and in order in the church there and was used to, later on to set things in order throughout the whole church of Christ everywhere. The church had been founded. There was much prevailing of the word of God. There were many disciples, but now they needed to set things in order. So first Timothy was written and he tells him in chapter two, you remember how to order the praying of the church in chapter three, the qualifications for the officers of the church. And he states clearly that I've written these to you that in case I'm delayed in coming back there, which is my intent to come back to Ephesus, in case I'm delayed, you may know how that men ought to conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. 
But in the first epistle of Timothy, which is written, I believe, somewhere in the middle 60s, after, between Paul's first Roman imprisonment and his last imprisonment under Nero when he was beheaded about 68 A.D., this epistle is written to Timothy with Paul's great concern about rising error brought into the Ephesian church by false teachers. Now, you remember in chapter 20 of Acts, the apostle Paul when he was going from Ephesus, or past Ephesus to Jerusalem with the good gifts from the Macedonians and from the Achaeans down to Jerusalem to give to the poor saints, he met them on the beach. Who? The elders from Ephesus. And he warned them and he said, After my departure, grievous wolves will come in to you, not sparing the flock. So you watch. And remember how I conducted myself among you. You watch and you be careful about the wolves. I believe that by the time 1 Timothy has, is written, that's already developing. By the time 2 Timothy is written, it's surely well established. And then by the time the Revelation is written, you've got a church that has had to deal with that which Paul prophesied. And I believe, according to Revelation 2, they dealt with it faithfully. First John is written by the by the Apostle John before his exile as or, or maybe perhaps during a period when he was about to go into exile back to apparently those people in Ephesus where he was a pastor. After Paul's death, John some years later became located in Ephesus and became one of the leaders of the church at Ephesus, perhaps the prominent leader. And John writes and says to in first John, they went out from us. Because they were not of us. Of whom was he speaking? I submit that probably he was speaking of some elders, some teachers in Ephesus, a good, solid, well-founded apostolic church who came in, spread bad doctrine and practice, and because they were tested and tried and found to be untrue in their claims, departed having been found out for what they were. They weren't of us. So they went out from us. The church dealt with them and dealt with them faithfully. Now look at verse 3 of 1 Timothy and following to help you see something of how you put this together in your Bible. And, and, and one of the neat studies here is to see how all this works together in history. You don't see that when you go read through your Bible. You don't understand the relationship between these things. It's very helpful to you to know what the significance is of what you're reading. Verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1. As I exhorted you to tarry at Ephesus when I was going to Macedonia, that you might charge certain men not to teach a different doctrine. There were certain men there who were teaching a different doctrine. So Timothy was left to charge them not to do so. To watch them. Keep an eye on them. Neither to give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Now whom do you think would be occupied with endless genealogies? You'd expect it to be some Jewish people, wouldn't you? The Jews who took great pride in their heritage according to the flesh and who wanted to push that stuff onto the new Christian church that you not only can believe in Messiah, but you must also become a Jew. We're not going to let you Gentiles get the blessing of Abraham without having to go through the problems of Abraham. So you would think that this might well be a group of Jews who are claiming to be Christians, Christian teachers, who are giving heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than a dispensation of God which is in faith. 
So they are given over to listening and exchanging thoughts, ideas, and theories about truth. Fables. Uh, here's what I think. Well, here's what I think. What do you think about this? What if that were true? Or this seems like a neat thing to consider. And they love to banter about the latest theological thought. And then they love to talk about the genealogy. Uh, who's, who was your grandfather and out of, where are your credentials? They look for fleshly credentials and they use fleshly concepts to puff themselves up. But the end in verse 5 of the charge, here's the goal. Here's what the charge for the ministry involves. Here's what a minister has to be. Love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned, not put on. From which things some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain talking. That's what they're doing, vain talking. Desiring to be teachers of the law, though they understand neither what they're saying nor whereof they confidently affirm. These are bold speakers. They are confident speakers. But they don't even know what they're saying. Or what they're affirming. They desire to be teachers of the law. But they don't know what they're talking about. But in verse 8. We know that the law is good. If a man use it lawfully. As knowing this. That law is not made for a righteous man. But for the lawless and unruly. For the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane. He starts out. Lawless and unruly. People that are ungovernable. Rebellious, arrogant. Uh, they, nobody can put a law on them. You can't tell them what to do. There are to be no rules. There are the people in the church that don't like church discipline. They don't like the elders having the rule of things. They like majority rule as long as they're in the majority. They're the lawless and the unruly. Ungodly and sinners. He's looking at the first table of the law. The ungodly. The word sinners literally means the profane. The ungodly and the profane. Think of the third commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain. He's looking at the first table of the law here. And he's describing people that epitomize. They don't want God to rule over them. They don't worship God. They don't worship God aright. They profane the name of God. They don't respect the day of God. Their whole view of, the, of life is ungodly. And then for the unholy and profane. And then he goes to the second table of the law. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Literally, this means smiters of father and mother. Not necessarily the killers of father and mother. But from the Old Testament law, a child that smites his parents is to be stoned to death. And he's saying, there are those guys, you see, that grows out of their refusal to submit to authority. They're going to snap at their parents. They're going to bite back at their parents. They're smiters of fathers and mothers. For manslayers. For fornicators. For abusers of themselves with men. And Patrick Fairburn says it's fortunate that there's no word in the English language to, define, to describe or express this Greek word that is translated abusers of themselves with man. You can understand what he's re referring to yourself. For men stealers, kidnappers, people that traffic in human beings, steal people and sell them to other people as slaves. The apostle is condemning such. He was not condemning slavery as an institution. Not in this text. Not the Apostle Paul. Search the New Testament. That's not what he was condemning. He was condemning those who buy men, steal men for profit. Slavery was an institution in the Roman Empire that was uh, an accepted institution. 
But there's a vast difference between the action of a slave serving a master to whom Paul gave instructions not to leave, but to serve him well for the glory of God. And a man stealing a man in order to sell him into slavery and using slavery for personal profit, which is primarily what was going on in our country generations ago. The principle is that there are people who traffic in people for liars, for false swearers. And in case anybody thinks he left out a commandment, he says, and if there be any other thing contrary to the sound doctrine. Now, what is this doctrine he's speaking of? Is he a legalist here? Is he saying that you're under the law? Unless you keep all these commandments perfectly, you can't go to heaven? No. Look at what he says in verse 11. All of what's gone before is according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. All of the Ten Commandments, which I've just briefly expounded, are according to the gospel. And they're to be preached and applied according to the gospel. Lawful using of the law. But there are some in Ephesus who aren't doing it. He calls them in the first place liars. You see in Revelation the connection? They say they are apostles and are not. In Timothy, he's, he's alluding to the practices of some men who are trying to teach the law but not practicing the law. When he writes this epistle to the Romans, he says to the Jew, Oh, you who condemn adultery, do you commit adultery? You who condemn stealing, do you steal? And here he is. He's alluding to the purpose of the law. And it's as though he's coming into the side door and he's listing the sins that are typical of these men who claim to be teachers of the law and don't even know what they're talking about. They're vain janglers, vain talkers, endless genealogies, fables. They're not expounding the law of God. They're expounding something totally different. Fables, new theories, new doctrines, new theologies, but not the law of God, which is according to the gospel. And he says there's no difference here between the law and the gospel, but these men are liars. And that's what Romans, that's what John is talking about in the Revelation when he says you have tried those who say they are apostles, who pretend they have the authority of Christ himself to preach what they're preaching and practice what they're practicing, and usurp that authority over the church at Ephesus. You've tried them, you found out they're not apostles. They're liars. That's a part and parcel of what they are. In Acts, they were called fierce wolves that they were going to come into the church. In Revelation 2, he calls them evil men. And he says to the church, you cannot bear evil men. There's no connect. There's no difference. They're evil men. They're liars. They show their evil in their propagation of a lying office. They're not what they claim to be. They are using their position and their gifts to get something from you. They have no intention of truly expounding the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So the whole thing here about a good conscience, a pure heart. An unfeigned faith strikes at the very heart of the issue of these men's life. These are fakes. And he's talking about faith unfaked. These are men whose hearts are polluted. He's talking about a pure heart. These are men who don't love the flock. They They spare not the flock. And he speaks of love out of a pure heart and a good conscience. And how can a man have a good conscience if his whole motivation for preaching is something other than the souls of the people to whom he preaches? And it's obvious he doesn't care about their souls if he doesn't preach the truth to their souls. 
but comes up with messages that tickle their itching ears so we can get gain from them. You cannot read First and Second Timothy without having that jump right off the page at you. The sixth chapter, First Timothy, thinking that gain is a it, it, that godliness is a way of gain. That the purpose for being godly is to make money. A, de- a description of the modern evangelist that is so steeped and so enlobbed and so gripped by his money and his possessions that he cannot even see past his own confession publicly of vile sin without wanting immediately to get back in the pulpit again and having the whole populace ready to have it so. And I submit probably because most of them are practicing the same stuff, at least in their hearts, and see no real serious problem with it. And you see, your problem is... You won't condemn very vociferously a wickedness that is residing unchecked in your own heart. Because you won't notice how bad it is. You've lived with it so long it doesn't seem bad. You're not alarmed at it. You're not shocked by it. You you look and say, that doesn't seem that serious to me. Why? Because you have the same problem. It doesn't shake you. And brethren, there are sins that you and I have grown accustomed to that we ought to fear and hate. And we don't fear and hate. They're evil men. They thrust aside faith and a good conscience. Look at verse 19 of 1 Timothy 1. He's charged Timothy to war a good warfare. In verse 19 he says, Holding faith... And a good conscience, which some, having thrust from them, made shipwreck concerning the faith. And he mentions two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Holy gossip. He tells them who the guys are. Watch out. And let me tell you what I did did to them. I delivered them to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. That's how serious I've treated these fellows. I've just handed them over. They like to play with the devil. I've handed them over to the realm of Satan. Let him have them for a while. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having thrust from them, they've thrown from them faith and a good conscience. They've bludgeoned their conscience. They've tolerated sin in themselves. So now they teach it and encourage it in others. Their consciences are seared. They don't even feel the weight of their hypocrisy. They're living hypocrites. They're presenting themselves as consistent hypocrites. It doesn't even bother them. They've thrown it aside. They're not providing things honest in the sight of man and God, as the Apostle Paul said. They are not called of God. They are not coming in love with a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. They bludgeon their own consciences and they run roughshod over the consciences of those that hear them. Now, he says they're preaching a different doctrine. Different from what? Different from the gospel of the glory of God in verse 11. A different doctrine. Another gospel. Something that looks and sounds to some like a gospel. But it isn't the gospel. It's a different doctrine. It has enough gospel in it to have gotten them into the church. It has enough gospel to have gotten them into the eldership. It has enough gospel that some believe they're apostles of Christ and have received them as such and have submitted to them as such. So it must have a lot of gospel in it. 
It's not just an out and out rejection of the name Jesus and salvation and grace. It's some kind of perversion of the gospel. That, that in the apostles' clear thinking is a different doctrine. Charge them not to preach a different doctrine. And apparently it finds at the, at the heart of its perversity the way it handles the law of God. Isn't that interesting? That when the apostle is burdened with a different doctrine that is endangering the very consciences of a church, he looks at the heart of the issue and finds maltreatment of the law of God. He doesn't have any problem in here about people who preach Jesus. He doesn't say, tell these fellows to quit preaching Jesus. He doesn't say, tell these folks to, uh, to give more urgent invitations at the end of their sermon so people will be saved. You're not evangelistic enough. You're not mission-minded enough. That's not the burden here. He's not burdened down with a church that doesn't weep enough, that doesn't pray enough. He's burdened down with a doctrine that mishandles the, the law of God. The commandments. Now, how is it mishandling them? Well, you could... Go in two directions, couldn't you? You know there are two ways to mishandle the law of God. One, you can make it the way of salvation. Another, you can totally ignore it and pretend it doesn't apply. One is legalism. The other is antinomianism, anti-law. You're against the law. Well, which were they doing? I believe a bit of both, and I believe there's often a bit of both connected. What happens is the legalist is highly selective in the laws that he insists that you obey. Watch the Pharisees who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They'll go heaven and earth to make a proselyte and then make him ten times more a son of hell than themselves. Jesus said, Woe unto you Pharisees and scribes and hypocrites! You go to all these links to keep all the little I's dotted and the T's crossed and you miss the meaning of the whole sentence. You can't see the forest for the trees. You've got spiritual detailitis. You don't understand what you're talking about. You've got masterpieces of sermons all worked out. You can stand for hours and pray in the marketplace, but you don't even know God. That's the heart of it. And these are their disciples and their cousins and their uncles and their children. First Timothy is filled with the concern of the heart of Paul that there are men in the church at Ephesus who are evil men, vain talkers, liars, no conscience, thrust aside faith, living as, as impure, faking it, preaching a different doctrine, having swerved from the truth. And they desire to be teachers of the law. But what do they do with the law? Well, look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Now, here they are, desiring to be teachers of the law. Now, please understand, we're in the heart of the issue of the letter to Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. This is the kind of stuff that went on in the church at Ephesus leading up to their faithful treatment of bad doctrine and bad teachers. In order for them to be proven faithful, they had to deal with the issue when it arose. The Lord commends them because there really was a crisis. And they pass the test. That's how the commendation is earned. In chapter 4. 
the first Timothy chapter four, verse three, or uh, let's start with verse one. The spirit says expressly that in later times, some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, that's serious. Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, what's he talking about? Through the hypocrisy of men. You see what's on the apostle's mind? Four chapters later, the same kinds of people. Hypocrites. And these doctrines are going to lead many to fall from the faith. Deal with the church's fall in Ephesus and leaving its first love. The Lord prophesied that the love of many shall wax cold because iniquity will abound. That's what happened in Ephesus. Iniquity abounds, the love of many waxed cold. But another thing happens. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It happened. It happened in the first century. Doctrines of demons. Whoa! That means we're, we're to watch out for the Satan cults, right? Watch out for Ouija boards. Well, now, I'm not suggesting you don't watch out for that stuff. But that's not the real danger here, brethren. The cult books and the cult movies, they are wretched and wicked. But that's not the, that's the, the devil, he throws that up here. To make us fear that and hate that so that the lesser subtle stuff doesn't seem so bad. It's sort of like the Cosby show. The PTA loves the Cosby show. Because there's no profanity. There's no nudity. There's no violence. There's also a value system that's ungodly at the root of it. Daddy is, daddy is a wimp. The kids rule the house. The value system is democratic. But you see, the devil has set up the wretched stuff for us so that we see, Ugh! and then when we see something that's only mildly wretched, that's acceptable. Oh, watch that. There's something that's almost decent. That's the, that's the, pro, that's the approach Satan would take. Well, in this case, it's the same thing. Doctrines of demons, so the Satan throws at us some overt demonism. Ugh! And we're ashamed. But now look what he describes as doctrines of demons. Through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies, branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron. You see the same issue. A seared conscience, liars and hypocrites, and here's what they do. Forbidding to marry. Well, the Satan cults don't do a lot of that that I know of. They encourage marriage and marriage and marriage and all kinds of things. These guys forbid to marry. And commanding to abstain from meats. There are certain foods you are not to eat on certain days. Especially certain kinds of meat, which God created to be received. He's saying doctrines of demons are going to be brought in by men who are liars, hypocrites, and branded in their conscience. But they're going to be preoccupied with emphasizing sort of uh, ascetic laws. They're going to not just teach the law, they're going to go beyond the law of God and teach laws that God never laid down. God creates everything good to be received. They say there's some things you're not to receive. And they're calling into question the integrity of God himself and his creation. That's a doctrine of the demon. Hath God said? Can you trust God? God made it and said it's clean. We say it's unclean. No, 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 no. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. That was typical of the Judaizers in Asia Minor and in Galatia. That was their doctrine. That was their practice. And, but they came in as Christians. Christ sent us. Oh, you're not listening to Paul. He's, he's, you know, he's a little off his rocker. He's not very attractive. His preaching isn't very eloquent. Listen to us. We're the gifted fellows. Christ called us and people were led astray. But what's the heart of their leading them astray? Turn to 2 Timothy. 
chapter 4. Same concern, just at the last writing of Paul before his death. Verse 3 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. The time will come when they will not endure the sound doctrine. Same doctrine we saw in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, the gospel. But having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lusts. And will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto what? Fables. The things the fellows in 1 Timothy 1 were given to. The time will come and people will turn aside to those fables. Why? Because the teachers will be teaching presumably the law of God in such a way as to be palatable, acceptable, and pleasant. They won't be teaching the law of God that condemns men stealing and fornication and lying and hypocrisy and, for, and all sorts of uncleanness. They'll be preaching the laws of God that keep people from eating meat and not getting married. And it looks like that's extraordinarily righteous. Though God never condemned that stuff, we won't condemn the things God condemns. Keep on fornicating, but don't get married. When God says, stop fornicating and get married, does he not? It's good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of fornications, let every man have his own wife. What does the devil do? Turns it upside down. Nothing wrong with a little fun. God made you this way. But it'd be wrong to get married. Celibacy is more righteous than marriage. Marriage actually propagates the original sin, they'll say. Don't eat meat. Meat's not good. Or it'll make you more spiritual. And the applications and implications of that can go, we can apply them in a thousand places. You see, these legalists are antinomians. They got the law and they impose laws on people by which they get to God, which are not the laws of God. So in that respect, they're legalists. They just got the wrong law. But they're antinomians in that the law of God they ignore. And trample upon. And hate it. So the true law, they neglect and ignore. The false law, they build up. And they're going to get people to follow them. One of the marks of cultists is that they are extraordinarily zealous for all sorts of rigidity that none of us would even contemplate. And we can't, we can't imagine how they got so dedicated. How they get so zealous over things that aren't true. Because the doctrines of demons deluded them. Satan foxed them. They add to the law. We could cite it back in Colossae. The church in Colossae. Colossae had the same problem. In chapter 2 verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And that refers to the ceremonial Sabbaths and the extraordinary mosaic attachments to the Sabbath. Don't let anybody judge you. Don't let them judge you in effect of those kinds of things, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the body is Christ. Let no man rob you of your prize by a voluntary humility, that kind of external look of humility that some around us are experts at. 
You know, that look of meekness that they put on their face. There's this, there's this, there must be a training school someplace to show these people. No, they all do the same thing. They all act the same way. You can just recognize that picture. You know what I'm speaking about. There's this voluntary humility, this voluntary abasement, lashing of themselves. As Luther lived his life, getting up all hours of the night to pray because he thought God wouldn't accept him otherwise, to the point that he finally confessed to the father confessor, I hate God. Well, no wonder. The more blood you shed, the more God loves you. The more sleep you lose, the more God loves you. The more meat you deny, the more God loves you. The longer you stay unmarried while your lusts are burning in you, the more God loves you. Monasteries are filled with debauchery and the results of it and the dead bones of buried babies under them. Nunneries and convents and monasteries filled with it. Why? Because we denied the things God said were good and imposed things God said were bad. We left men no choice. You call a man into the ministry and tell him that the only way he can qualify for the ministry is not to have a wife. You've doomed the man to disqualify himself for the ministry if he's normal. It'll kill him. And that's one of the things that happens, interestingly enough, among fundamentalists in our culture. They're not Roman Catholics. Among the most haters of Roman Catholics are the fundamentalists. But they have the same very problem. Now, all of us have these problems. These grow out of the nature of our sin. But Roman Catholicism has institutionalized that thing, and fundamentalism has institutionalized it. Externalism. Preaching, emphasizing the don'ts of externals. How long your skirt is. How long the sideburns are. Whether you should wear a mustache or not. Things that have nothing in themselves to do with righteousness. In themselves. Things that may be related to decorum, decency, a good testimony, yes. But in in righteous laws of God, they're indifferent. But that's what they emphasize. They are selective, you see, in the laws they pick at. If you would examine the preaching of this now infamous, notorious, recently famous evangelist, television-wise, you would examine a very selective list of condemned sins. Extremely selective. And interestingly enough, he was quite broad in some of his condemnations. But there's, there's a way to preach to an audience and to play to an audience. You preach on the sins that none of them are conscious of committing. And the preaching against sin gets applause and laughter rather than weeping and mourning and repenting. What good is it to preach? I even wonder of the value of preaching to you about fundamentalism and Roman Catholicism. What does that have to do with you? Because you have the tendencies to do the same things. To be more fastidious than Jesus in the law of God. To be an antinomian and a legalist all at the same time. I trust that God will give us wisdom to avoid such. They add to the law. Don't let men like that judge you. Don't let them rob you of your of your prize by voluntary humility, voluntary poverty, etc. Worshipping of angels. Huh. Where'd that come from? First century at least. To the church at Colossae. 
There were men preaching and practicing the worship of angels. Hmm. Dwelling in the things which is seen. Or visions. Some translations say which is not seen. It doesn't matter. Probably both. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Does that not recall the men in, in Ephesus in the same region? See, Colossae was a neighboring city in Asia Minor. Right next door to Laodicea and Hierapolis. The cities of the Lycus Valley. Same kind of situation in Colossae as in Ephesus. Same kinds of influence in Asia Minor. Same kinds of people. What? Puffed up in their vain minds. Vain talking. Fables. Dialogue. Sitting around the seminary chatting about potential theological truth that nobody got from the Bible. I studied there. We're one of the favorite pastimes. You sit around a group of people and chat about what you think. Not exposition of scripture, finding out what Christ says, but discussing what we think. Dangerous. Always leads to little smart aleck theologians. Vainly puffed up in their fleshly mind. And some of us who fell prey to that, it took years and years for God to burn it out. That's a dangerous stuff. Maybe some of it still needs to be burned out. And not holding fast what? The head. (laughs) Not their head. The head. From whom all the body being supplied and knit together through the joints and bands increases with the increase of God. We see the issue here in the development of the church at Ephesus was these who thrust aside a good conscience. They added to the law of God these unlawful laws. They neglected the morality of the law of God, as we saw in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. They taught novel doctrines. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, verse 16, he says that to Timothy to shun profane babblings, for they will proceed further in ungodliness, and their word will eat as does a gangrene, of whom is, and he mentions Hymenaeus again in the second epistle, and Philetus, men who concerning the truth have erred. What are they erred? They're teaching new doctrine. What is it in this case? Saying the resurrection is past already and they overthrow the faith of some. You see, there are people under persecution. And the only thing they have to look forward to is the resurrection of the body. And these guys come in and say, hey, that's already passed. The rapture's taking place. You missed it. So eat, drink, and be merry. What kind of insidious wickedness is such a thing? Who would want to preach such a thing? And yet people were swallowing it and losing their faith. These men were destroyers of souls. They had no heart for encouraging the people of God. Whatever it took to have lordship over them, they did it. The apostle Paul, who did have authority over them, used it just the opposite. He said, I don't want to lord it over your faith. I want to be a helper of your joy. I have the right to come to Corinth right now and nail you to the wall, but I'm, I'm waiting as long as I can because I want to help you. I don't want to bug you. The reason I put off my visit so long is not because I don't love you, but because I do. I want to give you time to understand I'm not against you. I don't want to have to come and deal with you hardly. Reconcile yourself to me and what I preach before I have to get there. Let me come in, in love and not with a rod. That's the spirit of the man of God who loves the people of God. Oh, yes, he's faithful to rebuke and to admonish and to authoritatively condemn their sin, but he sees when they're beaten down. He cares when they're grieved, and he tries to be as gentle with them as he can. To some, he goes and sits down and talks. To others, he waits. 
but he cares and he's trying to help their soul. But these men have no concern for the souls of other men. They're in so deep getting their riches, making their fame known, they can't see past their noses. Curiosity, puffed up in their mind, loving to talk about new stuff. Tell them not to strive about words to no profit, but to the subverting of them that hear, Paul tells Timothy. And they exemplify in their lives immorality, and they encourage it. In 2 Timothy 2.19, the apostle nails it to the wall. He looks at the heart of it and shoots the bullseye. And he says, How be if the firm foundation of God stands having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his. Firm foundation of God, the Lord knows. And what do we have in Revelation? I know your works. The Lord knows those that are his. But look what it says next. And. Let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from unrighteousness. Now quickly associate this back in Revelation chapter 2 with the commendation of our Lord to the church. They had been faithful in maintaining the purity of the truth in its proclamation. That's under the terminology works. And then there's another word, labor. That's the Greek word Kopan. It literally means troublesome, wearisome, bothersome labor. Toil. That's the labor that's grievous. That's the stuff that's hard. And this was a church that not only in its working in the ordinary required duties of the maintenance of the purity of the truth in its proclamation, but it was a church that was marked by its tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in its practice. Marked by the tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in its practice. Not only the proclamation of the faith, but the guarding of the faith among the life of the congregation. Their troublesome labors. That means that they had some problems when it came to the point of not only preaching but of maintaining the integrity of what they preached in their lives and in the life of the church. You know, you can go a long time preaching orthodox doctrine and condemning sin and stepping on toes and having people thank you for it. But if you start removing people from membership who don't obey the gospel, you get problems. I have a brother in the South in a large Southern Baptist church who's come to see truth. And the implications of truth have landed on his conscience. And he, under counsel, has begun to clean up the church roles. And they've gotten, they started visiting. They visit everybody in the church. They have all these non-resident members. That means people who don't even live in the county and are still on the rolls. So they just cut them off the rolls. Then they go visit all the inactive members, as though you're going to visit an inactive hand. And part of the body, it's not active. It's not, it's, it doesn't show up when the body comes together. Your hand's not here. That's, that's what we're talking about. It's ludicrous. They've removed 45 families in this year from the church. Having gone to visit these people who haven't been there in years. But have their names on the roll. Use it on the resume. Member of so-and-so Baptist Church, first county seat town. Go to apply for a job. Active civic leader, member of so-and-so church. The church doesn't recognize that membership anymore. You know what's happened? 
These people, these godly people, a member of the Church of Christ, have risen up and taken the church to task and are writing letters to the paper in the city town saying, we'll be glad when is removed from us this Jim Jones and we pray that he will be removed before these fools following him take the Kool-Aid printed in the city paper. That's what you get from past deacons. Once you begin to maintain the integrity of the testimony of the truth in its practice, then the work is no longer ordinary. It's laborious and toilsome and wearisome and troublesome. You've got problems with your labors. People fight you. There is a door open to me and effectual, Paul said about Ephesus, and there are many adversaries. The foundation was laid last week. The very gospel Paul introduced and bugged that city with, turned it upside down and ruined their economy and brought into question the future of their favorite idol and the temple and everything. Their bank was going to fall apart. You're going to tolerate such as this meddling with us? We already have our culture. We have our God. Come and take slide pictures and take them home and tell about it, but don't preach to us. Do a geographic special on us, but don't change us. What happened when the gospel changed them and God turned them from idolaters and the word of God multiplied and prevailed in Ephesus and a whole city full of people quit doing what they were doing. There was an uprising. The merchants, the leaders, got some laws passed. Went to the legislature and changed a few zoning restrictions. Hmm? The guys that have power and because they have money, they don't want anybody to rock the boat. Be a church. Be a nice little influence in the community. Set up a few basketball goals on your parking lot for the neighborhood kids. Preach a few nice things to the private group. Don't change the status quo. Don't let your gospel so have an effect on the lives of the people who know you and hear you preach that they change and quit buying the filth. You know what would happen? If everybody in America tonight repented and turned to Christ, you know what would happen? Have you thought about what would happen? The airline industry would have one day a week. They wouldn't be able to fly any planes anymore. All the controllers would get a day of rest every week. They wouldn't be all beat out of shape. The breweries would all close down. Not because, not because nobody, because brewery itself and drinking alcohol itself is condemned by God, but because there would be such a little profit because of the moderation, there would be no point in it. People would control themselves. People that had a drink once in a while would do it in moderation because they were Christian. And the brewery would shut down because there's no big profit, no big killing. Advertising would go down the tubes because people wouldn't watch the tubes so much. No, no. Sometimes spend an hour just meditating on what would change in your society if everybody repented and obeyed the gospel. Recreation, leisure, down the drain. People get busy doing stuff. Doing productive, creative stuff. Boat sales. Sunday at the lake. Real estate business. Out of the woods. That's when they make their most money. On the Lord's Day. The whole world would be turned upside down and a lot of profit would be lost immediately. A lot. We don't even have any idea how much. And let me tell you what, the church that brought that stuff into the, the guy that preached that message that got that kind of results would be in big trouble. Toilsome labors. Troublesome labors. So, 
in its works, the church served Christ, and in its sacrificial service, troublesome labors, it was marked by a tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in practice. You see, it discerned by virtue of a thorough scrutiny those among them who weren't true. The church was not willing to tolerate. They couldn't bear evil men. So they found them out. They gave them a fair trial. They checked them out. They investigated thoroughly. They got the facts. But when they got the facts, not a moment later did they keep them. They did not bear them. They found out what they were. They were utterly intolerant of those teachers and their doctrine. And the Lord Jesus Christ commands them for intolerance. Not an intolerant spirit, but intolerance of error in preaching and in practice. And you see, this is linked with their hatred of the Nicolaitans. What are the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans were an early first, or middle first century group that grew up known for their licentiousness and antinomianism. They practiced and promoted idolatry and all manner of fornication in the name of Jesus Christ. They were Christians in the churches, preachers propagating license. You're under grace, you're not under the law. If God didn't want you to do it, he wouldn't have made you this way. See, there's a subtle other way to practice Nicolaitanism. Don't preach that it's okay, but if somebody in the church is found out doing it, don't do anything about it. Just tolerate it. That's what Corinth was doing, and that's why Paul was so shocked and tearful about their, concern, their lack of concern over this wicked man that they refused to divorce, put away. See, the Lord commands them for two things. Utter intolerance of false teachers... And hatred of those that falsely practice their religion. Doctrine, impurity, intolerance, commended. Practice, impurity, hatred, commended. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, these people were not people who were soft. These people hated what Jesus hated. They weren't indifferent to error in living. It's no sign of love to be indifferent to men who live in our midst in debauchery. It's not loving to let a person go on in wickedness. It's no sign of loving. These people weren't lacking in their love for this kind of concern. They weren't lacking in their, they weren't indifferent. And Christ commends them for it. Now the undergirding reason and the demand for this hatred is that the Lord Jesus Christ hates it. I'm going to have to conclude with this because we're, time is up. But I want you to think a minute about the things Christ hates. I want this church to understand what the Lord Jesus hates. So that this church can have his commendation because we hate the same things. Hate. Same word we heard preached a couple of weeks ago. Hate your father and mother. Same word that's used throughout the New Testament. No trick word here. It means what it means. Hate. Abhor. Despise. Hate. Christ hates certain things. I guess the way to do this simply is to direct your attention very quickly to Proverbs chapter 6. And to use this as a conclusion for our message. 
I'm leaving out much, and perhaps we'll take it up in our continuation of this next time. But I want us to understand what's at the root of the Lord's commendation here. They hate what he hates. Well, what does he hate? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. And Jehovah, by the way, is no different from the Lord Jesus. He is Jehovah Jesus. He is I am. Chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which Jehovah hates. Yea, seven which are an abomination to him. That's sort of a formula in Proverbs. First of all, haughty eyes. Does that describe the arrogant promoters of themselves as apostles when they're not? Stepping into a place where God's apostles ought to be and presuming that they have the right to be there. Haughty eyes. Second, a lying tongue. (laughs) What other characteristic is more appropriate for the men at Ephesus? Third, hands that shed innocent blood. And that's the spirit of perversion of justice. Condemning what's good and okaying what's bad. And it shows itself ultimately in destroying the innocent. These men were not sparing the souls of the sheep of Christ. Fourth, verse 18, a heart that devises wicked purposes. His lusts make him want to pervert doctrine so that he can okay his lust and promote it and get other people surrounding him who believe and practice the same things. So his heart devises wicked purposes. God hates a heart which purposes wicked devices. Sits around thinking up how it's going to delude people and use people and manipulate people. God hates it. Next in verse 18b, feet that are swift in running to mischief. You see, God doesn't hate your feet if you're tempted by mischief. And if sometimes you fall into mischief, God hates it if you're swift to run into it. If it's the pattern of your life and doesn't take anything, and you're just, running, you're just open game for anybody to come and invite you, and you're ready to go. Mischief. Feet swift to run. Next, a false witness that utters lies. How much does God love honesty and integrity and truth and facts and hate the opposite? A false witness that others utters lies. And then, he that sows discord among brethren. Now, what, what more can you expect to describe these fellows in Ephesus? That they were coming in, undergutting the doctrine of Christ that had been already established there by the apostle for three years. And then undercutting the practice of Christ, which had been exemplified by the apostle for three years. I mean, what what other way to sow discord among brethren? And don't kid yourself. They were going house to house, interviewing and talking with people nicely, politely, with smiles on their face, blessing them for Jesus' sake and saying, we love you, praying with them, patting them on the back, smiling at them, and, and winning their affections. And how? In order to do what? To pervert their practice, to match up to the practice of the false apostles, and to get gain for themselves. It's not new, brethren. It's been going on from the beginning. But the church's acceptable response to such is to do like her Lord does. Hate it. And to show that hatred by being utterly intolerant of it, not bearing it. We can't bear it. We can't bear it. I'm going to cut out all three of my implications and simply say this one thing. 
This church must utterly insulate itself against every expression of bad teaching and bad living because your Savior hates them. And there must be no tolerance among us of the practice of such things that Christ has saved us from. Now that's hard, isn't it? Let me warn you, it's not going to be easy. And this church hasn't seen the end of that. It may be that until some of us repent, we may not even be able to practice such diligence. Because we can't face up to the rigors of hating that which we still practice. How can we be intolerant of it in others if we're tolerant of it in ourselves? God help us. God help us not to tolerate or bear things that Christ can't bear and can't tolerate. God help us not to love things that Christ hates. God help us to hate what Christ hates and to love what Christ loves. And God help us to be at least in this respect faithful as the church in Ephesus was faithful. They tried them. They didn't bear them. Even though it was laborious and toilsome for them, they endured the persecution and the rejection and the hatred and the dissimulation because of their faithfulness to the truth in its proclamation and in its practice. God help us to be such in our church. We need grace, brethren. We need wisdom. We need holy boldness with one another. We need patience. Yes. We need grace. We need love. But we need a rigid adherence to the truth in its integrity of practice and its purity of proclamation. Without that, there'll be no commendation from Christ. There shouldn't be. God give us grace to be a church that the Lord Jesus with a whole heart can say, I know your works and I commend you. Let's pray together.